2: From WABE in Atlanta, I'm Summer Evans, and for Lois Reitzes, and this is City Lights. This year has taught us a lot about the importance of adapting to change. As a child growing up in a military family, Shermaine perry Knights realized that change was not something to fear, but to embrace as a new adventure. The Atlanta author's new book, I Move A Lot and That's Okay, teaches children about resilience and how to cope with rapid changes. The Bremen Museum's exhibit, A Jazz Memoir, photography by Herb Schnitzer, features iconic musicians who were a part of America's jazz scene in the 50s and 60s. Later this hour, we will hear from Herb and curator Tony Casadante about the links that connected Jews, jazz, and the African American community. But first, a glimpse into the lives of those who portray the Father of Christmas.
3: For much of the past year, we've seen that we are a nation divided by politics and culture wars. All the more reason to consider a symbol accepted by many people of varying political and social values, Santa Claus. Photographer Ron Cooper has a new book called We Are Santa, Portraits and Profiles. He joins us now from Colorado, where he is based, along with one of those featured in the book, Santa Rick, who lives in Atlanta. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you you so much. Ron, this is your first book. Why did you want to photograph and write about Santas around the U.S.?
0: Well, several years ago, I was doing a photo shoot actually in New Mexico. I was photographing Civil War reenactors, cowboys, and gunslingers. And when we finished that shoot, one of the subjects came over to me and said, do you have time for me to show you another character that I do? And I said, of course. And he went away to change and came back as Santa Claus. And he was wearing a beautiful Western Santa suit. And it turned out that he was a professional Santa. And uh, he did a gig at a shopping mall in Albuquerque. And I photographed him. And I kind of filed that away. And it wasn't more than two or three weeks later, I was reading in the paper about the C.W. Howard Santa Claus School in Midland, Michigan, which is a, a school that has been around since the 1930s and trains professional Santas. And that caught my eye. And then very shortly thereafter, I learned about a gentleman in Atlanta named Rick Rosenthal, also a professional Santa Claus educator and a Santa himself. And I thought, all of this information coming my way about Santa Claus is just too coincidental. So I started looking into it, and I came to understand that there are a number of people who are professional Santas. These are not people who buy a cheap Santa suit at a party store uh, and go to a party on occasion. These are people who were genuinely dedicated to embodying the character and the traditions in the history of Santa Claus. And as I learned more about these gentlemen, I became fascinated. And actually with the help of Santa Rick, I was able to meet a number of professional Santas, make their portraits, and that led to this project.
3: The book profiles 54 santas and one mrs claus how did you begin the selection process
0: well part of it was working with people like santa rick who knows virtually all of the professional santas in the country and i asked him can you connect me with people who would be great on camera who are really superb santas and i came to understand very quickly that the most successful professional Santas are outgoing and they are wonderful in front of the camera. And Rick introduced me literally to dozens. In fact, uh, we rented a studio in Atlanta and I photographed a number of uh, Santas from Georgia, from the Atlanta, the greater Atlanta area and throughout Georgia, and 15 of those Santas appear in the book.
3: Wow. I'm curious, Santa Rick, Ron said you know many Santas throughout the country. Do you have a professional association? Do you have conventions?
1: Well, I own the Northern Lights Santa Academy, which is the second largest school in the country. And then I also have an agency, the National Santa Agency, and we supply Christmas performers, Santa, Mrs. Claus, elves, live reindeer, photographers, anything you would need for or even want for a Christmas party, we provide them across the country and parts of the world. So that's how I know so many, and I also belong to many different Santa organizations as well.
3: I read that you are an Orthodox Jew, but you see no contradiction between portraying Santa Claus, a symbol of Christmas, and living as an observant Jew. How is that?
1: Well, there's a couple simple answers. Uh, one is, first of all, every major organized religion has basically the same message, do unto others as you would have them do unto yourself, leave the world a better place, help people. And, and that's really what every religion stresses, and, and a belief in a higher power. In Judaism, of course, it's monotheism. And part of the Torah says for the Jews to be a light unto the world. So anything that I can do as a Jew uh, or as a person who happens to be Jewish that helps to bring peace between people, make life easier and, and, and make it a better world, that's really what I'm supposed to do. So I don't see it as a conflict at all. On the other hand, there are those who say Santa, is Christmas. And I think that Santa is an important and integral part of Christmas, but Santa is not St. Nicholas. If Santa were St. Nicholas, then I would have a problem because I'm not a saint. But St. Nicholas uh, is a real person and he was Catholic and a spiritual person who has no set religion. If he did, then he would either be Catholic or Protestant or Or even maybe buddhist or hindu he travels the world and he super imposes himself literally across the scales of all types of religions that accept him and and he he's not any particular religion but he is clearly a spiritual creature who believes in a higher power source and so that is the reason that it's just really not a conflict at all
3: have you had any pushback from jewish friends or acquaintances who question your role so initially
1: when some people find out that i am santa and they find out that i am jewish are jewish or not there on a small minority is some pushback for the people who are not jewish they kind of some of them might feel what's he doing in our business but they quickly learned that that's not what it is. And, and on top of that, I'm happy to explain it in terms that they can understand. And for those that are, are Jewish that, and again, it's the minority, a very small minority, that say, what are you doing in their business? Uh, I explain it. And the, the easiest way to explain it, regardless of which side of the fence it's on, and, and for the most part, it is not a, it's not a problem at all. Most people are thrilled and embrace the fact. But for those that it is, the answer is real simple. I, I ask on an adult level, first of all, do you have any problem when Jewish doctors work for non-Jewish doctors on Christmas? And they all say no. And I say, do you have any problems with Jewish merchants selling Christmas toys? And they say no. And then I asked the, the last question, which is one that really hits home. If you saw a child who needed help, would you ask them what religion they are before you help them? And the answer is no. And with those three questions, the lights go on and they get it. It's just that easy. We're just here to help each other. And it's not a conflict of interest. It's just making the world a better place.
3: Hmm. I imagine you hear many wonderful stories from children. And I read that you also have some poignant stories. You visit nursing homes.
1: That for me is the most humbling and beautiful experience that I can count on. I mean, there are individuals that are magnificent and we have wonderful experiences, but in a memory facility, it's just so humbling. There are people in their 80s and 90s that have been married 60 years or longer, and they may not recognize their spouses or even their children, but they, for the most part, know who Santa is. Some of them stop talking, but they'll start talking to Santa. And it's just an amazing power that is given to you as Santa to go into a situation like that. And not everybody responds the same. But for those that do, it's just so humbling and so beautiful and so moving.
3: I'll bet. Other than Santa Rick, Ron... Would you tell us about some of the other Santas featured in the book?
0: Absolutely. I'd be delighted. Uh, in terms of uh, heartwarming stories, um, there is a Santa who is based in Tennessee uh, named Mike Tyndall. And uh, he is the only Santa that I met that has a prosthetic arm. Although when he's wearing his Santa suit, the sleeves of the suit cover his arm. And of course, like all Santas, he wears white gloves. So it's not immediately apparent that he has a prosthetic arm. He tells a fascinating story about uh, a child, a young girl who jumped up into his lap uh, one day while he was uh, in a uh, shopping mall. And he realized immediately that she was also missing her left forearm. And he rolled up his sleeve to show her that he was missing his forearm and he had a prosthetic device. And this little girl was so delighted, she just threw her arms around his neck. And he said, this is the reason I'm Santa Claus. And so, as I met these gentlemen around the country, there are many, many, many such stories where they've had interactions with children where they have had a profound impact, if even only for a moment.
3: Mm. Thumbing through the book, I noticed James B. Knuckles, who is from suburban Atlanta, from Decatur, Georgia. What can you tell us about him?
0: Well, Santa James is one of the relatively few uh, African-American professional Santas. And uh, as you might imagine, from time to time, his authenticity as Santa is challenged by children and by adults who say, how can you be the real Santa if you're not white. And he has a very philosophical approach to this. And he says to them directly, how do we know what color Santa really is? And in fact, interestingly, if you go back far enough in history, there are certainly many historical instances where Saint Nick or Santa Claus uh, has been characterized as having uh, dark skin. But rather than reacting negatively uh, to these kinds of comments, Santa James uses it as an opportunity uh, to educate these children. And if you ask him what it's all about, he said, it's not about the color of the skin of Santa Claus. It's about Santa's ability to communicate Christmas spirit and goodwill and compassion and charity. And that is really, I think, very emblematic of how these Santas all believe and all operate in their interactions with children and adults.
3: Yeah, and it is refreshing to see you have another Black Santa, Michael Darby, also from Atlanta. Oh, that photograph is just fabulous. I mean, that's a smile to light up the skies, not just a room.
0: Of course. Well, one of the great things about the Santa Claus performers that I met and photographed is that they all have a sparkle in the eye. They're outgoing, both in terms of their personality and their Christmas spirit, and they have absolutely fabulous beards. In fact, one of the professional trade associations for Santa Clauses is the International Brotherhood of Real Bearded Santas. And of the 104 Santas that I met, interviewed, and photographed, 102 of them have real beards, and it makes them unmistakable as Santa Claus, uh, not only when they're in their Santa suit and in their Santa persona, but for many of them, uh, when they're on the street, when they're in a coffee shop or in a bank or in a grocery store, they are Santa.
3: Oh, we're talking about authentic. Absolutely. You mentioned that you started a school and you're the dean of the Northern Light Santa Academy, Rick. How does one become a certified Santa Claus? Well, first of all, there is no
1: official certification anywhere in the country. There are a few schools and um, the training at most of the schools range from two to seven days. Your professional Santas will go to at least one school a year, as well as belong to many organizations, as well as have continuing education throughout the year, because for the majority of the Santas, they only work in December and mostly weekends. Some get two months, and a very, very few, I mean very few, such as myself, get to be Santa all year round. But that's not, I've been at it 51 years, I started when I was 16, I'm 68, this is my 52nd year. But it's important in order to be Santa that you have to be able to be in character all year round. And the only way to do that is through continuous education throughout the year.
3: My goodness, what do you do all year? We mentioned the nursing homes you visit. Well, Santa,
1: I ask people to get married. I give away anniversary presents. What's your husband giving you lately? Maybe he needs to (laughs) talk to me. (laughs) Would you you like some tickets to Beijing or Hawaii? Or, you know, let me know and we'll talk to him. Um, But we also uh, go to birthday parties. Uh, I have this one little girl that uh, I've been to her birthday party the past two years, Evie. She's just the sweetest, most magnificent little girl. And then, um, unfortunately, the sad times, too, like if Aunt Margaret is not doing well, and this is her last year on life, and it's March, and she really loves Christmas. The family might want to do Christmas in March, and we'll go and do Christmas in March, and we can we can be there for any reason. If your team just won the uh, soccer tournament, Santa can show up to congratulate you. Santa can be anywhere for anything, because Santa represents inspiration and hope and just all the good things in life, so you You want them there for the good times, no matter what they are. I've done uh, gender. um, The new thing now is to do gender parties where people who either don't know you're pregnant or know you're pregnant, but don't know what kind of baby you're going to have. A lot of people are hiring Santa to do the gender party and announce that you're pregnant or that you're going to have a boy or a girl.
3: Hmm. I wondered what COVID has meant for Santas this year? I can tell
1: you that initially the whole Santa community across the country was really in pandemonium and very concerned that Christmas wouldn't happen. I talked to those that I talked to and I said, Christmas is going to happen. In America, and I can't speak for the whole world, but in America, it's really a line in the sand. Americans are very resilient because they are loaded with imagination, and hope. And those are two of the three things that Santa brings out. Imagination, hope, and and, and inspiration. And so Christmas was gonna happen and I knew it, and I knew it would be in a big way, but it did so happen. We, We at the National Santa Agency start writing up contracts by the hundreds in January for our clients all across the country. And on around March 15th, the phone stopped ringing and they I don't think we had a half a dozen phone calls until the middle of August, but then the phone started ringing regularly. And a few weeks later by September, the phone did not stop ringing. And now literally I go from phone call to phone call, never hanging up and returning very few phone calls because I just can't dial out as fast as people are dialing in. But I knew the line in the sand that was gonna prove it all to be true was Hallmark. They started showing Christmas movies three months early. And the reason they did that is because they too knew that America needs Christmas. And I was telling our Santas from April, not March, but from April, you wait and see, it's going to be bigger than ever, not only for Santas, but I really believe the retailers will do well, in spite of the fact many people have financial difficulty right now, because they just need to feel good, and that's what Christmas does for them. So there
3: are Santas in malls.
1: There are Santas. Uh, many malls are not doing uh, Christmas events this year because of COVID being an airborne virus. But I will say that, and, and in, in my realm of Santas that that we have working for us at the National Santa Agency, when this started, I told all of them take the year off because most Santas are in two to seven high-risk categories. They're mostly over 65. They're mostly 50 pounds overweight. And as a result of that, many of them have either high blood pressure or diabetes or heart problems or lung disorders or sleep disorders. So while no one is more important than anyone else, Santa is usually the most high-risk category person in the room, uh, being two to six categories of high-risk. So literally, every Santa that is out there is risking his life. We told all of our Santas to take the year off. About 30 to 40% of our Santas did decide to take the year off. And all of our existing clients that we had before, we told them not to have the event, just take the year off. And the majority said, we'll wait and see, we'll wait and see. But they have decided to go ahead and have the event because we have a protocol that we've set up using the CDC guidelines as a baseline, we have taken it to the nth degree, uh, to a much higher level to protect not only Santa, but everyone who is in the area or to visit Santa. So we have uh, put up a whole set of protocol for that. And they're not anything that you would really notice during the event, but there is a large amount of anticipation from people like well what are we going to do if we can't sit on Santa's knee and we can't hug Santa and really it's once they're there it's gone it doesn't it just melts away and it's gone but beforehand it is a legitimate concern but we've managed to figure out a way to make your meeting with Santa just as meaningful and the photographer can get great photos because you're near Santa and all the memories are perhaps even more so important this year, because you can not only get a photo of Santa and your and your visit with him, but with a mask on, which will be a keepsake photo in years to come. In five or 10 years, you'll say, oh my goodness, I remember that. That was Christmas 2020. What a crazy year.
3: Oh, and let's hope this would be the last time Santa would have to be masked, along with everyone else. I hope so. Well, I think this has been so delightful talking with you. And if there are fewer Santas out and about because of health reasons, it's all the more special to look through Ron Cooper's book, We Are Santa. Thank you both so very much. Thank you, Thank Lois. You. It's been a pleasure.
2: Photographer Ron Cooper, author of the new book, We Are Santa, Portraits and Profiles. He was joined by Lois Reitzes and local Atlanta Santa, Santa Rick. You can see some of the photographs and learn more about the book on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. After a short break, we will learn about the photographer who documented much of America's jazz scene from the 50s and 60s. You're listening to WABE Atlanta.
3: Photographer Herbstnitzer has said jazz is a statement about a people's desire and thirst for freedom, and with freedom, the sweetness of individuality and sense of self-worth. We must salute jazz musicians, not only as jazz artists, which they were, but as American artists. His work is the subject of a major exhibition at the Bremen Museum, a jazz memoir, photography by Herb Schnitzer. He joins us now, along with curator Tony Casadante. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you very much. Thank you, Lois. Glad to be here. Herb, you have photographed icons Louis Armstrong, Nina Simone, Miles Davis, Dizzy Gillespie, Duke Ellington, John Coltrane, and Count Basie, among others. When did your interest in photographing jazz musicians begin?
4: Oh, a long time ago. 1958, when I was uh, commissioned by Metronome Magazine to do a study, a visual study of Lester Young, the great tenor saxophonist of the Count Basie Orchestra at that time. And I was just so captivated by what I was feeling as much as what I was seeing. It was, it was uh, quite a jolt to my emotional system I never anticipated that I would get so involved with the music, but I have and have still am after all these many years.
3: I'm curious about how you developed relationships with these artists. Would you go to particular clubs, their hangout spots, uh, introduce yourself? Were, were you invited to their parties?
4: Well, I did become part of the jazz scene in New York at that time. And uh, it it just uh, was almost accidental. All of those wonderful photographs I made of uh, Louis Armstrong, I made while we were on tour and I was on his bus and we were just hanging out. And and I really mean hanging out. I mean, jazz musicians are a breed apart. I just love them.
3: Now, your photography career spans more than 50 years. Tony, why does the exhibition focus on the years between 1957 and 1964?
5: During that period, Herb was a young man, grew up in Philadelphia. When he finished art school, he heads to New York to, you know, make his mark on the world. And as he said, the job for Metronome, he had been freelancing for a while, was a year after he was in New York. And then that opened up the world of jazz for him and a permanent position on Metronome magazine, which, again, got him into the community. The focus of the exhibition for that period was it was a very rich time, a great deal of social change, and Herb was kind of right there on the pulse of it. And that is really kind of a core of his work. Herb is still a working photographer. I'm sure it gets a little tougher now with his age and COVID, but he is actively documenting his entire life. But that particular period was a, was a particularly strong period in Herb's career. And it's kind of the focus of the exhibition. And then we deal with a later period when he came back to jazz and reacquainted with a lot of these same artists in the 70s and 80s and into the 90s. And then we also have other aspects of the exhibition that deal with his social work and uh, social issues that he's documented throughout the arc of his career. The main focus is that early period, but the exhibition is rather expansive, and we have a, a, a lot of different subjects that are covered.
3: Herb, what were you hoping to reveal about African-American jazz artists that mainstream, predominantly white newspapers and magazines were not showcasing during that era?
4: They couldn't ignore Louis Armstrong or Duke Ellington, Dizzy Gillespie. These, Miles Davis, certainly, these were all crossover artists and were accepted by the white world. I mean, that's pretty obvious today in looking back as to how these men and women integrated themselves within the bigger community. One of my favorite is Nina Simone. I mean, I was called by the Colpix Records to do a photo session with Nina Uh, in anticipation of their their publishing her new uh, record. So I got to meet her, and we became fast friends. We were pretty much the same age, had the same political viewpoints about things, and just stayed in touch with each other all those years. I know a lot of people think she was very difficult, but I loved her, and that was important for me.
3: And she was an amazing artist. She was a great
4: artist, just wonderful.
3: Can you tell us about your parents' refugee story?
4: Well, that, they were uh, immigrants uh, coming to this country uh, when they were very young. My father was six and my mother not much older. And they settled in Philadelphia and created their own groups, and uh, protected thems- themselves in that way.
3: Were they the ones who introduced you to jazz? No, they had
4: nothing to do with the jazz world. They, they were hard-working, first-generation, or I'm first-generation American, but my parents, uh, they just had to make a living. They had to survive. And uh, I was pretty much stifled by that kind of world, and I knew that sooner or later I was going to break out and go to New York, which is where I always wanted to be anyway.
3: What does this exhibition reveal about the connection between Jews, jazz, and the African American community?
4: Yeah, that's an interesting question. Uh, The fact that there were many uh, Jewish photographers, which was interesting, photographing jazz. Most of them are gone now. I think I'm one of the very few that has outlived everybody for better or worse. So the connection is an obvious connection. The, the struggle of uh, Jews in America, the struggle of jazz musicians to, to live without the fear, of the cops, which uh, I always felt was a, a tragic moment in the history of uh, black relationships and Jewish relationships. Certainly with the civil rights movement, which I was involved with, those two groups came together. They just realized that they were ready to join each other. And uh, they did during that time. Uh, number of rabbis the uh, number of influential jewish showbiz people it, it was it was really a natural for them to come together
3: yes i read that you have said injustice for one is injustice for all and i was wondering what advice you might have then for aspiring photojournalists or photographers today who want to document our current socio-political climate, protests, activism, and so on?
4: It's very difficult, Lois. It's that simple. The men and women coming up today are having a heck of a time making a living just photographing jazz musicians and jazz artists. It's just, uh, it was a moment in time. It was like when all those guys came together for the Declaration of Independence. I'm not comparing the two, but at a given time, that's what happened in the world of music. I mean, uh, Duke Ellington, by far the, the most wonderful, jazz composer of the 20th century. I mean, you just don't have power people like this anymore. Or maybe maybe they are out there, but I, I don't see them. And uh, uh, that's a tragedy. I, I wish there were a, a new Nina Simone who would get out there and really raise hell. I think she would have had a ball with Donald Trump. <laughs> There's no doubt in my mind. And that's part, of, that's part of the gift that jazz musicians in those days had. They were part of the civil rights movement. They were er- early supporters of the civil rights movement going back to the late 40s, early 50s. There was a heck of a time. I loved it. And I was all of 24.
3: Wow. Talking about some of the photos themselves, the photos are so gorgeous. I'm looking at one, um, two pages, one of Thelonious Monk at the piano at the Randalls Island Jazz Festival. And then on the opposite page, you've captured him playing ping-pong. And he has such glee and intensity in his eyes, I'm amazed, the paddle itself looks like you captured the vibration or the action of it. Can you tell us something more about that? Monk was,
4: he he lived on a different level. I mean, he was the strangest, but most loving of all the men and women that I uh, met. He just lived on a plateau like Duke just his own person. Nobody tried to imitate him. He didn't try to imitate anybody else. other musicians. And uh, I was told that he loved ping-pong. And I was always a pretty good ping-pong player. So I worked it out with the Baroness, the Konenslager. She protected Monk and uh, took care of him financially. She was a Rothschild. So he was playing at the Jazz Gallery on the down in the village and at the end of the evening, which was now like three o'clock in the morning, we drove over to her house. She had a Bentley and I had a beat up VW. But anyway, we started playing, just hitting the ball back and forth, back and forth. And I said, you ready to play Monk? And he nodded and we started and we went at it. And uh, I lost all three (laughs) games. (laughs) <laughs> that I played him, but it was such a joy to be able to do that with this great player because Monk was really super. People thought he was a little loony, but he wasn't. He was a great, great pianist.
2: That was photographer Herb Schnitzer and curator Tony Casadante speaking with Lois Reitzis. A jazz memoir, Photography by Herb Schnitzer, will be on view virtually and at the Bremen Museum through March 31st, 2021. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Summer Evans, and for Lois Reitzes, thank you for listening. Change can be an unsettling thing, and if 2020 has taught us anything, it has been how to adapt to our ever-evolving, always-changing surroundings. And learning how to cope with change is at the heart of Shermaine Perry Knight's new book, I Move A Lot and That's Okay. Shermaine published her first children's book last month as a resource for those who struggle with rapid changes. I spoke with Charmaine via Zoom, and I began by asking her how closely this book was related to her own childhood.
6: It's spot on. I grew up in the military. I was born at one station. A couple of weeks later, we shipped out to another one. (laughs) Several weeks after that, we moved overseas. So um, I moved every year or two or three years growing up in the military. And I said, I really want to talk about our experience because I don't see us represented in books as much.
2: Yeah. No, I mean, I can't think of a military children's book, you know, especially one that moved around a lot and everything and the ins and outs of that. I noticed in the book that Grace has biracial parents. Was this similar to your own childhood? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I really liked that aspect too, because I feel that you don't see that much in children's books either.
6: So I thought about that as well, because growing up in the military, you have a lot of families that are bicultural, biracial, and everyone celebrates that diversity. I learned a lot from my Filipino friends and my Hispanic friends and my friends of different backgrounds. My, fa- my family's from Trinidad and Tobago, so my mom's side is Black and white and Indian, and my dad is African American from here in the U.S. Two different cultures, several different races within one family, and you learn a lot and you just explore. And so I saw that as a theme around other military families. I said, you need to see more mixture among families and books i don't see that enough in children's books
2: yeah definitely i'm glad you celebrated that and you brought that to the forefront you know in the illustrations did you create the illustrations yourself
6: no i hired an illustrator i talked i said let me explain everything that's in my mind to you (laughs) and then let's go from there (laughs) but a lot of the illustrations a lot of the illustrations are based off of photos that i have of when we moved and the cartouche on grace's chest that that element on her necklace You know, all of those things are actually representative of my own life.
2: Oh, cool. So like the purple dinosaur, did you have one when you were a child?
6: I did. His name is Cody.
2: That's awesome. (laughs) Oh, that's really cool. I didn't realize that. I did lose him on a plane. (laughs) Oh, you did lose him on a plane as well?
6: I did. It was heartbreaking.
2: Oh, man. So... Can you start by giving our listeners a brief synopsis of I moved a lot and that's okay?
6: Yes, I move a lot and that's okay represents a military child's experience in a biracial, bicultural family. And Grace is a young girl who moves a lot because of her dad's job in the military. She loves new adventures, but every time you have to leave everything and everyone behind, it creates new challenges for you so This student like myself, because this represents when we moved from Georgia to Italy, you are leaving everyone behind. You're learning a new culture, a new language, trying new food, and really trying to adjust to a new environment, but you don't wanna forget the people you left behind. And so this is a dangerous balance between the hope you feel, and sometimes you feel hopeless in the middle of the move. And so people say freedom isn't free, but I would say also for the military brat, because we don't typically talk about the ins and outs of their emotional awareness.
2: And in the beginning of the book, you write, you just said military brat, but you write that Grace, the main character, she doesn't want to be called a military brat. Was that something that you encountered as a child as well?
6: Yes, because as a child, nobody wants to hear brat. You you have a negative connotation, but they call you brat. They like to call you military brat. And as you um, look at the definition behind the term, they talk about your resilience and your ability to have that mental toughness and grow and make the best of any environment. And that's why they refer to you as a brat. As an adult, I like the term. As a child, I'd say, don't call me that. You can call me Little Perry because that's my maiden name. Or you can call me Charmaine, but don't call me that. And so I hear a lot of children saying that. I don't want to be called brat.
2: Why do you like the term now as an adult?
6: As an adult, I think it, it ties you to a community that now that I'm in the civilian world, it's a little bit different. But you know, when you grow up in the military, you're around this tight-knit group of individuals of a diverse background and everyone holds on to each other because we're all growing together. You know, their family is your family. You're learning a lot about their customs, their culture. It's a tight-knit group. Even though you're moving, you're losing people, you're gaining new family, it's very different. It reminds you of an old-school, old-world environment but now it's different as you grow up. So you want to hold on to some things that remind you of the memory of being a part of the military community. I think the term Brad is one of those.
2: Yeah, yeah. So you're not a part of the military community now. What inspired you to write the book at this point in your life?
6: So I've always been an avid reader and a writer. And when COVID-19 hit, you know, that time in which I would be driving back and forth to the office or riding public transit, I said, I, I want to make this time meaningful. I want to write and not just write anything I want to talk about some of my own stories and so this is where I started to just write about some of my childhood memories the first time I tried Italian ice cream the first time I tried Italian pizza the first phrase I learned in Italian right and when we moved to Turkey I'm writing stories about that as well that experience because I just I said you know I don't have children yet but I said I want to read a lot of kids books and I just started doing some research and I said I don't see us represented well but I know the stories firsthand and the experiences. Let me share that with the world.
2: Do you think this book will be a series or a trilogy? Because you just said that after Italy, you moved to Turkey. Will this book continue possibly?
6: This book will continue. Um, I, I received a really overwhelming response when I published. And then I saw some military soldiers saying, I want to see myself represented because the character is a male military soldier. And they said, I, but I serve as well. So the next book will have the female soldier represented. And then there are several families that are dual military where the mother and the father or same sex couple are both serving in the military. And I'll talk about that experience. So, and then you'll see Grace travel to Japan (laughs) and Grace will travel to Turkey and Grace will travel to a base within the US, a different base. So I'll try to share as much of my own experiences but also incorporate some of those around me because we all have some very different but similar themed experiences.
2: Why did you decide to make the main character's name Grace instead of Charmaine, even though it's closely related to your own childhood?
6: Grace is a name I've always loved, and then when I think of Grace, not just a name, I think of what it represents—having some feeling for someone else, having a little bit of empathy, you know, trying to connect with them in a different way. They say you have a little grace for this person, and I said, I, I like that name. I want to use it because it represents more than just the
2: person. Mm. Throughout the book, Grace talks about things she enjoys and doesn't enjoy about moving, but she always ends with the saying, and that's okay. Why did you want to end most of the pages with this affirmation?
6: You're taught resilience as a military brat or military child, and you're taught, make the best out of every day, every new situation, everything you encounter. And so I'd always find myself saying, you know what, I'm okay with that. Or I'm not okay, but I'm going to make the best of this. And I said, if you start to build a theme around this, young children can really adapt that. You know what? I don't like the way I feel right now, but that's okay. I can grow past this. And so with every move, there's a period of time that it's very difficult for any any individual. But then you start to feel like everything is okay. You start to embrace the new areas, the new people, the new culture. And so I said, let me keep that theme up of it's not okay or it is okay. And that she would ultimately at the end realize that hope and resilience are universal and that this will help her to overcome that circumstance.
2: As I was reading the book, I felt it was very relatable for me. I don't come from a military background, my family doesn't, but we moved around a lot as a child, not necessarily across the country, but like around North Georgia and North Carolina. And my sister and I were in several different school districts and we had to constantly learn how to make new friends and adapt to new circumstances. And now years later, since I've been with my husband, we've moved several times around Atlanta, like seven times in the last eight years we've been together. Do you think people who move a lot as a child are more receptive to doing this in their adult life?
6: Yes. There are certain thoughts and feelings, experiences, Related to rapid change and relocation, for me, I'm always open to a new adventure. That's how we framed it many years ago. It's a new adventure. And you're mentally preparing yourself for what is to come because those thoughts, those feelings, that experience that you, you even felt, those are familiar. So those experiences are a little distant, but it's still familiar. So you say, you know what? I can relocate again because this is not scary. I understand what will come with that. And I know that something better is on the opposite side.
2: And like I said before, even though my family didn't come from a military background and other families who might read this book might not have that same experience, but how do you feel that this book can still be relatable to children in other circumstances?
6: Great question. I feel it is, it is relatable because if you think about it, every life change that we're going through and especially the nuance or the global pandemic of COVID-19, we all have our own thoughts and feelings and experiences, right? Right. We're supporting others, we're forming friendships and across cultures and boundaries and trying to make the best out of every single day as adults, children's experiences are valuable as well. And so I said, this is a great book to just represent that rapid change and, and so much is happening around us, but you need to stop and realize there are moments and great challenges. You say, you know what, this is relevant to talk about. So I, I tried to intentionally create each page around a conversation where you can stop and say, hey, I didn't grow up in the military, but I recognize this so many boxes and it's having to move again. Let's talk about that. Let's find a moment to celebrate within that, write their names on the boxes. You know, there's an opportunity within each page to discuss this and say, you know what? This is happening. Let's talk about those moments. And I feel as though having those family conversations are really important, even as adults. I've moved twice in the last year you know, same experiences, same feelings, same thoughts, but it's different than what a child is not always able to articulate out loud.
2: Yeah, this book can be both a valuable resource to children as well as an adults, especially during this uncertain time of COVID and a lot of change that has happened in this year.
6: Yeah, I've heard, I've heard from a few teachers that are saying they're using this as a resource in their English language arts class to learn new terms in the military. So when month of the military child gets March, and in November for Veterans Day, they want to highlight some of those areas. They want to talk about, you know, mental health. They want to talk about self-care and they want to use this. And I said, that's wonderful. You you got all of that from this book. And I was just trying to share some of my heart and what's always been in my mind with others. But they saw a theme that was even beyond what I imagined.
2: Speaking of military terms, I loved that you referenced several acronyms and abbreviations in the book, such as PCS, permanent change of station, and TLF, temporary lodging facility. Why did you feel it was important to include those terms?
6: These are terms that um, most military members are familiar with, but it's hard to explain such a large concept to kids, like military orders. You can say anything you want, but all they heard is that the big boss said, it's time for us to move and we can't say no. (laughs) So I tried to make it digestible. And so I'm also a learning and development professional. And part of what I do in the daytime is I take a difficult concept and make it digestible for any age group. And I said, that's what you should do. When you're talking about you know, an acronym or military terminology, whatever it is, you need to explain it in such a way that anyone can understand. So I said, let's make it relevant so that someone within the military and a child can understand or someone on the outside. Because if nothing else, 2020 has taught me that we have to build bridges across boundaries and we need to, learn more from each other, celebrate the differences, really look how we're represented and say, you know what, there's something similar about us. Let's learn more about each other.
2: That's wonderful. How could this book have been a valuable resource for you growing up, moving around as much as you did? Wow. Um,
6: there there were no books, at least, at least at the time that I grew up. There were no books that talked about the military kid experience. There were no books talking from a child's perspective on diverse celebrating diversity and, you know, how representation matters. There were no books talking about resilience. You had conversations at home and you had conversations among those that you knew. This would have been a valuable resource for me. I probably would not have cried the way I did when I lost Cody. If I read that some other child lost their favorite stuffed animal, but they found a great friend later on. You know, I, I would not have had some of the incredible lows when you, when you're, you're waving goodbye to people at the airport. If you know that there's hope on the other side, you know, just, just the moment you experience, you wish you had a book like this, just so you can, you can talk about it. You can feel as though this adventure is your own. And so for me, books all represent a great adventure. You can get lost in it, create the world as your own. And I would have lived in a book like this.
2: Author Shermaine perry Knights, her new children's book, I Move A Lot and That's Okay, is available now for purchase. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we will speak with actor Coleman Domingo about his role in the new film Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. The film will be available to stream on Netflix December 18th. City Lights producers are Ryan McFadden and myself. Kevin Rinker is our engineer and Lois Reitzes is our host. I'd love it if you'd follow her on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at WABE City Lights. Thanks for listening to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR.
3: Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.
6: The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious become
2: a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate and thanks.